The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. After more than 359 days of protesting on the borders of India's national capital, Indian farmers won an unlikely but momentous victory. In late November 2021, Prime Minister Narendra Modi made the surprising announcement that his government would repeal three farm laws. The decision came after hundreds of thousands of farmers had camped out for months. More than 700 had lost their lives, facing oppressive heat, intense cold, state violence and successive waves of the COVID-19 pandemic to fight against the new laws that they said threatened their livelihoods and left them vulnerable to the whims of global agribusiness corporations. Their sacrifices paid off. Modi's announcement made the farmers' protest one of the world's most successful protest movements in recent history. However, some, such as the Dalit journalist Suprakash Majumdar, have also offered caution. As he points out, despite being hailed by some as a victory for the farming sector, the repeal of these laws will not be felt by most of the agricultural labor force over 90% of who only own small amounts or no land at all. Given the globalized nature of agriculture and food, it is clear that what is at stake in this discussion is not just applicable to India, but affects anyone who cares about maintaining local, equitable and non-corporate foodways around the world. It's clear that we have a long way to go, but this episode is about spending some time dwelling on this movement. At its core, the farmers' protest offers a story about the future of food and agriculture, who controls it, and how people are willing to fight for their way of life. In the end, what the farmers' protests offer is a story of staggering will and perseverance. 
This episode, which was recorded in late 2021, before the Modi government's decision to repeal the farm laws, offers a glimpse into the farmers' movement as it was still unfolding. Like other protest movements in recent Indian history, protesting farmers were subjected to an intense amount of state and neoliberal propaganda, and even called anti-national and terrorists for protesting. In this episode, we're going to block out the propaganda and hear from the farmers directly, and they will give us a sense of what life is like on the protest site and how the protest site itself embodies the values that they are so desperate to protect. As this farmer who I met at the protest site explained when I spoke to him in November 2021, the 11th month of protests, we are all in high spirits. He said that the farmers were ready to continue their protests until 2022 or even until 2024. In this episode, I will ask, what allowed the protest to sustain itself day after day? What did the protest site feel like? What was its spirit? What was its energy? And of course, how did food and protest flourish side by side? This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. And I'm your host, Meher Varma. India's agricultural sector, which employs 60% of India's population, has long been in crisis. Almost 52% of all rural agricultural households are under heavy debt, much of which is because of the neoliberalization of agriculture. These trends are associated with increasing farmer distress and high suicide rates, as well as rapid urban migration. It was clear to everyone involved in agriculture that reforms were badly needed, but many were surprised when the Modi government rolled out three farm bills that weren't developed in conjunction with farmers. Instead, in line with the demands of global agribusiness, the bills imagined a deregulated and liberalized agricultural sector as the solution to the farmers' distress. The bill supporters argued that giving farmers greater market access and doing away with middlemen would double their average income. On the other hand, activists and farmers involved in the protests argued that removing market protections and leaving farmers up to the whims of the market would aggravate rather than alleviate their ongoing distress. Of the approximately 4 to 5 million people who have directly or indirectly participated in the protests, one key figure is the inspiring activist Nafkiran Nutt. Nafkiran's guidance and translation assistance at the protest site when I visited gave me a much deeper understanding of what was at stake for farmers, for Indian democracy, and for the future of food. Nafkira notes that while the reforms were made to sound progressive through words like liberalizing or increasing access and opening markets, they actually disguised the real harms and dangers for farmers and ordinary citizens. It seemed like really catchy that free market, you can go and sell anywhere, but it's not possible because the transportation fee will be more than the actual price of the commodity. So it's just like about propagating these catchy words, but otherwise there's nothing in this particular law because it was already there. The proposition of a free market seems like a good idea, but Nafkirin describes what it would actually mean for farmers to lose some of their protections that they currently enjoy. 
For example, one of the main points of contention for farmers in the new proposed bill was the removal of MSP or minimum support price for their crops. When I walked around the protest site, I couldn't miss seeing the words MSP plastered on tractors, makeshift walls, and even stenciled into the sand. MSP is a minimum price guarantee that acts as a kind of safety net or insurance for farmers when they sell particular crops, particularly in case the prices suddenly fall. We do have a minimum wage system. In case of market or in labor sector, we have minimum wages where like nobody can make somebody work under that wage. So it's very similar to that. So minimum support price means the government supposed to make a list of crops and decide uh, the minimum price for that crop means nobody can buy that particular crop less than that price farmers and activists have expressed concern that the new laws don't account for minimum support pricing nafkiran explains why this is a problem say like when there is a monopoly by the big corporates even in that case if there is existing msp that corporates won't be able to pay the farmers less than that msp but when there is no msp then it's wholly solely dependent on the corporates and yes farmers need reforms and yes they were struggling for the betterment of agriculture system but these three laws they're not gonna make anything better they just gonna make things worse mm-hmm. because they are opening market for the big corporates without fixing any minimum support price so after coming of these three laws farmers uh, would be left on the mercy of the corporates big corporates only the role of how large corporations are reshaping indian agriculture was also hotly debated at the protest site during my visit i heard a heated discussion about how one of india's largest corporations the adani group which has a market cap of 130 billion us dollars this past august started intervening in the apple trade apple growers in himachal pradesh accused one of the adani group subsidiaries adani agrifesh of lowballing apple growers by fixing the prices well below their value yet because adani is such a big buyer farmers were forced to sell and lose money or alternatively to stop harvesting adani agrifresh offers an example of how large agri businesses can reshape local markets and livelihoods ek baat batao is kisan andolan ke piche hindustan ka patta degi kya this discussion is literally about bad apples one man half jokingly asked the other about the last time he ate a decent apple which is his way of insinuating that big corporations and Adani Agrifresh in particular have ruined the fruit trade. When the man responds that forget eating an apple, he's barely eaten a good meal recently, a young woman pipes up and responds that that's not an accident or a misfortune. Corporations have, quote, killed our livelihoods, employment, education and healthcare, end quote, she says. Nafkiran also talks about how the free market can actually just mean greater freedom for large corporations to monopolize markets and determine prices. In a way government is saying it's between the farmers and the corporates we have nothing to do with right. it which is a very dangerous thing right. because like the crisis with free market is it sounds really good but 
there is a bigger threat of monopoly mm-hmm. which is dangerous not just for the farmers but even for the small corporates yes. so your logic of healthy competition is really dangerous yes. because there is nothing healthy competition yeah. because even the individuals or the corporations they came with a certain kind of privilege they came with a whole bunch of capital so whichever have like bigger capital bigger resources more resources only that would be able to monopolize the things other will be like out of market so there's nothing like free market it's all about monopoly just imagine when jio sim came again the logic was of free market that it will increase the competition and things will get better but what happened the public sector public uh, telephone sector uh, telecom sector which was bsnl or mtnl it collapsed it totally collapsed because there again the government went on the back foot so jio used the public network they used towers of bsnl for their connectivity they provided free internet to the whole country mm-hmm. for initial few years mm-hmm. and now when there is no like other option when there is no other public option they are the sole monopolers and now they are charging whatever they want to mm. and nakuren predicts that the same scenario will happen in agriculture as well then they will say okay even if they'll pay say 2000 per quintal to the farmers in the early days and uh, once they monopolized then they'll be like okay we'll pay you only 500 or say 1000 if you want to sell us sell us otherwise like we don't need your crop and then the farmers will be left with nothing so that's the crisis at the protest site these questions about the privatization and neoliberalization of agriculture were not abstract or theoretical but they were understood in terms of life or death this is why many of those protesting said they wouldn't stop until they had won all their demands as one woman said being in the protest site has become like a job we won't retreat until our demands are met she stated powerfully her companion also said if we don't protest now death is waiting for us at the next stop they will snatch everything from us already the young people are so troubled there are no jobs and no avenues for employment we can't earn our livelihoods here the two discuss the rising costs of healthcare food and education and their fears that private corporations are here to take over their lands they are grabbing our farmlands nothing will be left they said i was surprised to hear such vocal opposition to the government's policies particularly given that the media landscape in India has been entirely controlled by corporate and government interests. It's pretty difficult and rare to find dissenting voices on television. Despite this, in recent years, the Modi government has experienced strong opposition to several of its policies. But still, dissent is increasingly difficult and dangerous in contemporary India. Many of the same tools that were used to crush other mass protest movements including the excessive use of state force, media and government propaganda, and other strong-arm tactics were also used against the farmers' protests. But this time, it didn't happen the same way. 
It's not like the government didn't try. They did. During the initial days when majority of the farmers were from Punjab, they said it's a, a separatist movement. Punjab farmers are asking for Khalistan, the separate land. Then there were like left organization, there were red flags in the movement on the protest sites. They said, see, these are Maoists. <laughs> so they were, again, they took the took narrative that they want to break this company, uh, country. They tried everything, even this time. But it didn't work this time because there is a sentiment in the masses for the farmers that they are the food givers. Annadata. In India, Annadata is like very near to God. So that's why like people didn't take that narrative this time, the government's narrative. And uh, it became very difficult for this government to snub this particular movement. I was curious to know how the farmers themselves had resisted the government's propaganda, including efforts to divide and pit farmers against each other. How did farmers stay united? I asked Navkirin to explain. In the farming sector or in the farmers' community, the sense of collectiveness is quite strong. Even like when the farmers are sitting on the protest sites, the other farmers of the village, they are taking care of their crops, their land. And like only that collectiveness is helping them to sustain for so long. Navkiran also reminded me that what was at stake in the farm bills affected not only farmers, but everyone. There were many signs at the farmers' protests which recognized this reality, like one which said, if you've eaten today, thank a farmer. Navkiran tells me more. That's why I guess this is the most important act from the perspective of common people. Just feel it. How can you do that? Just think about the people who died last year due to hunger. How can you do this? So that's why like even the Morcha or the farmers movement, people sitting there, they are saying it again and again. It's not just about us. It's Mm -hmm. not about the farmers. It is about the common people. Mm -hmm. Because uh, these kind of laws are going to impact the common people. Nafkiran also explained that those protesting decided that only one member from each family should go to the protest at a time. In this way, families could sustain the agricultural work at home, but also contribute to the protest. Families from all across Punjab and other agricultural states contributed money, food and other items. I also noticed the spirit of generosity amongst the protesters. Wherever we went, we were offered food and tea. In the excerpt that follows, a man offers a young woman some tea. She explains that she just had some while visiting another tent. He offers again and asks the rest of the group if they'd like some tea as well. I can attest from my visit to the site that there's absolutely no shortage of chai. It flows at any time of the day, like water. That was just one of the many examples of the giving and welcoming spirit that we encountered at the protest site. I wondered if and how the spirit of generosity extended to those beyond the protesting community. In particular, many people, including Navkiran herself, noted that those protesting 
tend to be from well-off or even upper-caste farmers who can afford to sit at the protest site for months on end. But Navkirin explained why it's important for the movement to include people across class, caste, gender and regional differences. The farmers who are struggling, they uh, very well uh, know that this is not just about them. This is about people. That's why they are like appealing the masses again and again that come and join us. Our strength is our quantity. So the bigger number would be there, it would be easier for us Mm. to like pressurize this government. Mm -hmm. Since the farmers were camped out for more than a year, they had to figure out how to sustain themselves. I'd heard about the incredibly organized food kitchens or langars that fed thousands of people, including the police, multiple times a day. I also became a reader of the amazing hyper-local newspaper, Trolley Times, that had been created by protesters to counter government propaganda. On my visit, I was also delighted to find a school library, clinic, cinema, and even a shopping center. A kind of dream shopping center, I might add, as there was no exchange of money. At the protest site, while talking to another young man, I even discovered that there was a makeshift disco. The man explains that the space used to operate like a dance floor. Tractors would turn on music on their decks and hundreds of people would climb onto them and dance. Of course, a stiff drink was never hard to find. Near the dance floor, he also pointed out to a school and a former temple that was converted to the headquarters of a Dalit organization. It was clear that the protest site crystallized life itself. Despite their serious struggles, the farmers I observed seemed to laugh and joke very often. Nifkirin confirmed how they were always in high spirits, reminding me of the woman's voice we heard earlier at the beginning of this episode who insisted that farmers won't retreat until their demands are met. While the fight for an agricultural system that serves farmers and ordinary people is still ongoing, my visit to the protest site reaffirmed to me how through endurance, persistence and unity, the fight for a better life can sometimes be achieved. As we begin another uncertain year, I hope this story offers you some warmth and some hope exactly the notes on which I'm happy to conclude season one of Bad Table Manners. Until season two. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer Jennifer O'Neill, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researchers Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Western Radio Collective Executive Producer Celine Glacier, Sound Engineer Max Kotelchuk, Associate Producer Quentin Lebeau, and Sound Intern Simon Leibendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at westernradio.com. <laughs>